This is From Paint to Purpose, a podcast by FCP Services, where we believe people drive growth. Exploring topics related to company culture, leadership, and construction industry insights. Now your host. All right, welcome to another episode of From Paint to Purpose. Uh, today we've got a special guest on, uh, Ann Rhodes, who is a evangelist for values-based uh, organizational culture and leadership. I am so happy to have uh, Ann a part of our podcast. As everybody knows who listens to this, we talk a lot about company culture and leadership, and there is none better, in my opinion. So, Ann, thank you for being a part of our podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be actually talking about my favorite subject. <laughs> well, why don't you give our audience a snapshot of your career and how everything kind of transpired to get you to this point of saying, this is what I believe uh, really makes a difference in organizations. Well, that's fun. Um, after graduate school, I ended up working for a company that probably most of you know. I was a head, the first head of people, and we called it people because we hated inhuman resources and personnel at Southwest Airlines. And so I got to work for probably one of the best values leading um, CEOs probably this country has ever seen, and that was Herb Kelher. 50 years later, they're still a values-driven organization, and they've been extremely successful in any measure that you want to um, put forward. But I worked for Southwest for years, for eight years. I went, we went from 4,000 people to 20 when I was there, 20,000 people. And then I went on and actually went to Doubletree Hotels, which now is part of Hilton. But at the time we were building Doubletree, we went from having 120 hotels to having 85,000 employees. We spoke 26 languages and we put a values model into that organization after seeing what how successful it was at Southwest. We developed a systematic approach to doing that. And at the inception of Doubletree, when we came together and then ended up with all kinds of other brands, of course, um, we actually put in that model and it was very successful. So successful that now it's part of Hilton and they're using that model um, in some of their brands, most of their brands. And then went on to start my own company in 1999, which um, is called People Inc. And we use the systematic approach and have written a book on how you build values-based companies around five different areas that all have to be part of the 360 model. And in 1999, I was asked to start JetBlue as one of the founders. And we started JetBlue. And today, you know that they have 22,000 employees. Um, they're in something like 120 uh, different cities in something like 15 countries. So they've been very successful and they live and breathe this model. That was the first place I got to put it in place um, from an inception company with zero employees when I got there and, and um, have been on the board for 15 years and just left the board. Finally told them I have to go, you need some new people in here, right? Um, but very successful um, example of how values-led organizations can be successful even when all the odds are against you because frankly, we were told we'd never make it, but doing very well. So I'm a firm believer in the value of values and the values represented by behaviors around each of the values. That is the secret sauce. It is. And, and so when you were, what lessons did you learn when you, in, when you worked with Herb at Southwest that you were able to say, yeah, this really, cause I have to imagine it was somewhat of an experiment at that point. Is this really going to work? Is it going to take hold? You probably learned a lot of lessons along the way that then you were able to carry on to Doubletree and then to JetBlue and now to uh, hundreds of clients within your organization. 
Yes, in fact, the first thing I learned, and this is why Herb asked me to come work for him after he met me at the bank I worked in, he actually did not know how to hire people around that set of values. The most critical thing to me is not only defining your values and behaviors, but then hiring people that represent those values and have them as part of their value system. That is how you keep the model going. And that's when you get to create it from scratch, like we did at JetBlue. If you look at those people and you talk to them, you will find out that the values that represent JetBlue are represented in each of those employees. It's very interesting. So one of the first things I learned was don't make exceptions. Do you know we did not hire Herb's son? Um, not because he wasn't a good guy, but because he didn't make it through our values interview. We didn't hire a David Nealman, was the founder of JetBlue, and we didn't hire his brother. Um, and we didn't make exceptions. And, and he tells that story all the time. They say that both of them say that if I had been interviewing them, they probably wouldn't have been hired either. But <laughs> it was great fun. So the first thing was learn, learn that you need to hold out. And especially in this environment, I know it's very tough because we don't have the applicant flow that perhaps we desire. All of us have openings, at least in this at this point. And we're looking for those A players, but you've got to hold out for the A players. A players, by definition, are people who have your not only your competencies you need for the job, but they have the values that are so necessary to keep that values-based organization, um, a values-based organization. So that's the first thing. The second thing is don't just think that you can recruit them. You have to retain them. And how you retain them is you re-recruit them every day. Um, being a leader means that you, and especially in this environment where we're doing hybrid, where we're doing virtual, it means you stay in constant comment, uh, constant communication with those employees and you re-energize them around those values and behaviors. And to me, it's every day. So going to that concept of the, of hiring A players, I think a lot of organizations would say, yes, we all want A players, but they do focus more on the skill sets that somebody brings to the table and not as much around the fit, if you will, for, for a company uh, culture. And every company has a culture, whether that's intentional or not, uh, as we know. But talk a little bit about why it's so important to focus first on the fit and the skills are necessary and you can't hire somebody who is going to be a chief financial officer for an organization that doesn't understand anything to do with finance, but you, you, that's sort of a table stake, but how, how do you help organizations understand that when you're hiring a players and you have to hold out for that, the number one thing you're looking for is around the, the, the consistency in that person showing up with the behaviors that are expected in core values and then, or in conjunction, the skill set, not the other way around. Exactly right. In fact, you can tell pretty much if they at least have some of the competencies by looking at their background before you ever ask them the first question. So that's the first cut that they do have, you know, decent background. The second cut, and I would tell you, I wouldn't even spend my time with someone who probably doesn't have the competencies, but by the time you know they have the competencies from just seeing the resume, I'm not talking about in-person, then you spend that in-person time uh, validating the competencies very quickly, but also spend most of the time talking about examples they can give you on living those values that you've defined for your organization. So for example, integrity, give me an example of a time when you knew by telling the truth that you could be losing your job. And people that have integrity will give you example after example of doing that. I can give you three or four even from my own experience. And I'm sure that others that you interview, if integrity, honesty, 
truth or some of your values, you would be able to get examples of those from anyone that has that value. They will be able to give you examples. But behavioral interviewing was started in World War II with pilots. And you probably have heard the story that the Air Force found that many of their pilots were not hitting the targets. But there was a group that consistently hit the targets. And they found out that there were certain behaviors around a set of values that those individuals had. And so they started hiring from a behavioral model, not just a competency model they could check off on the box. So they started hiring people that safety was their number one concern. And safety was exhibited by A, they're always walking the aircraft and checking to make sure there's nothing they can see physically. They always do a checklist. And so they changed how they hired based on a set of values that were critical to their success. And they totally changed the outcomes. Um, it's history now, but there are lots of books that have been written about the advent of behavioral hiring, which happened during World War II. And we use it today in every company we go into. Once you've defined the behaviors around the values, you can consistently um, get that. For instance, I, I would tell you, if I were to ask you, what is one of the behaviors you notice every time you fly Southwest, what would it be? What's one of the values? I mean, well, I think it's it's the cheerfulness of the of the staff, regardless of what the circumstances are. It's it, that's right. Fun is one of their values. So one of the examples, one of the questions they ask every single employee, I don't care what job CFO, I don't care what job you're going to have is give me an example of a time that you used your sense of humor in a tough situation. And that's why you see those personalities being consistently very fun, enjoying their job is because they have a sense of humor. You will not be hired there if you don't. Um, we had a person who had all the technical skills in technology. He was, he was gonna be the assistant CTO. And it's very CIO, we call them then. At the time, we asked him questions, but we obviously didn't do a good job because the minute he got there, we knew he wasn't right. In fact, he came to see me about two months into the job and said, I can't stand this place. Everybody's so happy. Even when I go in the men's room, they follow me and they want me to tell them jokes and laugh with them and kid with them when I'm at the urinal. And I said, you know, I think maybe we ought to be writing your resume and figure another place for you. And we did. And he went to work for a competitor airline that lived in, that was in the same city. I won't name. Everybody knows. And guess what? He didn't have a sense of humor, but he had the competencies, which was all they were looking for. So I just tell you, it's very evident. If you hire for those values, you can walk through, I'm sure, your organization and you can talk to people if it's hybrid or if it's virtual and you can talk to them and you will get a sense of the values, even on just a conversation. So you bring up a good point. Obviously, hiring is not 100%. We all make mistakes in, in, in the people that we hire. So in those situations where you know that you made a mistake with a critical hire, what are the steps that you encourage organizations to take to exit that person out within the core values and, and still holding to those and how you do so? Because um, that's always a hard part. I think there's a lot of people, right. I would include myself in this sometimes, that you think you can you can make an impact, and so you're going to give somebody a little bit longer than you probably should. When you know from almost the day one when you go, oops, we really screwed this one up. So what do you help uh, organizations understand how they go about doing that? Because you spent all this time and energy hiring somebody only to turn around and realize really quickly this is probably not the right place for them. And cutting your mistakes earlier is always better, not only for the other people that work with this individual, but for the organization generally. 
And I would tell you, treat them on the same way, the same way going out that you treated them coming in. So we do as much to help them. We handhold them. We give them severance depending upon their level because we know it'll take time. Now, right now, it's not taking as much time to find a job, but of course, it will take time. We also handhold them. We, I, in many cases, have written their resume and helped them um, and talked to them about how they could find another job. And in I've been in this business over 30 years. I've never had a personal lawsuit from someone we terminated because we handhold them, we treat them right. But I will tell you, I haven't also ever had a time when someone didn't tell me that it was better when they left. And those are people that are still in the organization. And many times we, because one of our values as leaders is caring and we have a lot of empathy, hopefully today, that's one of the new traits of great leaders is more empathy for people. But I will tell you, having that, the one thing we should remember is it isn't good for them either. You know, if they're in an organization that does not mirror their values, I will tell you they aren't enjoying coming to work. So when you think of it that way, it's a little bit easier to make that decision. But I will tell you, because we are caring, and hopefully every leader is, it sometimes really takes a while. And we think we can change people's values, and we can't. Yeah, I, I've had I have stories uh, as well around. I've actually had a spouse that wrote me a letter after the person we let the person go that said thank you for getting giving our husband back because he was miserable in the in the time leading up to that. And so, it, I think we we lose sight of that 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 it's both ways. It, it, they may not be a good fit for the organization, but it's also doing a detriment to them too. They're not living out their purpose uh, the way it's designed. And so I think the sooner you can do that, the better. And um, and I think it represents to everybody because everybody else around knows that they're not a fit. And so if you keep championing these things and you're not making that decision, it clearly has an impact from a leadership perspective that you lose credibility uh, around what you're trying to drive towards. Um, and I think leaders need to know it also says something about them and the employees are watching to see what the outcome will be given what they believe about the leaders and have been told about the values. So Remember, every day you keep them and they aren't mirroring the values, you're sending a message to your team, too, that you may not mean to send. Yeah, oftentimes we're the last ones to see it, too, uh, because we think that we have an opportunity to make an impact and we're trying to uh, to influence. And yet we're actually influencing the wrong way in some cases because it's the decisions we don't make often that cause us more problems, um, especially in leadership positions. So you've created this system around building out a values-based organization. Can you talk a little bit about what that system is, how it really started to develop, and why it's so powerful as you go into organizations and help them do this? Sure. So we believe the first thing you do is you actually define those values. As you remarked, and as I totally believe, every organization has a culture, but is it the culture you want? So by defining the values and the behaviors, people more clearly coming into the organizations, people that are at the organization, your vendors, your, your partners, your customers, they will be able to see what you really stand for. It's really a branding exercise and you define those values, but you have to define the behaviors because um, we've heard of organizations who had integrity on the wall in big silver letters in Houston in particular, but it wasn't so much a case of integrity, right? But for some people there, it may have thought that that was their vision of integrity. They need to know the behaviors and they're minimal behaviors, but you define um, four or five minimal behaviors for 
each of the values so people understand what the expectation is so your customer sees the experience um, being the same every time that they frequent your organization or have contact with anyone. And then the second thing you do is you build a very, very strong hiring model with actually hiring guides around those values and behaviors. And you make sure that peers are allowed to help hire the people that work with them, not only the leader, but the peers. You will be surprised what kind of support they will get inside when someone helped hire them. Um, so you build a hiring model without exception. You don't make exceptions. I will tell you, even the greatest hiring models will make mistakes. You will make mistakes because we're only human. Um, but the mistakes will be less frequent when you have a very strong hiring model. Um, and then you hold to that model. The third thing is then you build an accountability. You know, today, I think we've lost, to me, um, some of the meaning of accountability. We need to have people accountable for getting the right results the right way. At the end of the day, that's what great organizations do. You don't just get results, right? That's the old school. That's what we used to do. Well, if you made X sales, you got Y revenue, we've done it, right? Bottom line went to Z, whatever. Well, now it's about getting the right results the right way through using the values and behaving in a way that mirrors those values. And then you, you construct these reward programs. And I saw one yesterday that I'm talking to somebody about after our call today. You can use Zoom. And you can, one of your tech people can come up with a very quick, this is, it. it's just so cool to reward someone and have a peer send them a note and make it easy. It's not about more money. Rewards and recognition, if you read the data, especially on millennials, and if you look at 2025, 75% of our workforce is going to be millennials. And then we have all the generations behind them. All of them really at least the data coming out from OC Tanner and some of the other Grant Thornton, some of the data shows what they want is recognition in front of their peers. And since many of us are home now working and doing various things, you can do it then using technology. And I just think we are doing so many things today, but we forget to tell someone when they did a great job. And that recognition should be around getting the results by using the values. And there are very, very easy ways to do it. Um, this one on Zoom I'm talking to is Regis Corporation has um, kudos for peers and you do it through using technology. It's just so cool. At JetBlue, we have, when you turn on your iPhone in the morning, you actually have a way to send a story about someone behaving immediately to their director, even though we have over 20,000 employees. Um, your iPhone has a way to send that and it go, it's coded right to their leader. So we need to collect and, and keep those stories. And as a leader, you need to keep telling those stories. So somehow you have to get a hold of the great ones, right? Because by telling the stories and by recognizing people for it, it reinforces that that's the right way to behave, right? And behaviors, consistent behaviors are what we all want for our brand. So, and then... I would tell you the next one is all about making sure that people understand those behaviors create the brand because branding is important. And for people to know, I mean, the old stories about Nordstrom's, they told those stories over and over and over and about Southwest. And now they're telling them about JetBlue and telling them about um, any of this. Uh, when I go into Whole Foods, they're telling stories about people. These great brands have great behaviors and great stories, right? And then last but not least, when you turn on your iPhone at JetBlue and when you do it at Southwest, you will see the numbers for the day. I believe that it's about everyone understands what the goal is in terms of financially, how they can help you succeed doing it. 
when we were at Southwest, one of the things we started doing because our employees um, were real interested in healthcare, we were trying to get them to save 10% of their healthcare costs. So because we know how the employees at Southwest think they're all about fun, we described a day of healthcare costs in terms of how many six packs of beer it cost us. We actually ended up giving them some instructions on how to save money for us. We saved 10% that year. So we know it works, but talk in the language that is common to your team, right? But let them know that I think that this is a game of business. I love that book, Great Game of Business. And I love the way they talk about, um, Stat talks about, let everyone know the numbers. I believe that since I first started working, I ran a trust fund out of grad school um, for First Interstate in our bank. And I started looking at the numbers. And from the first day I looked at numbers, I've looked at numbers my whole life. And I think the metrics are important. And today, when people know there are four or five metrics to understand, and you know, if, if you walk into any JetBlue office, there's a flat screen TV with the numbers for the day on it, in case you haven't turned your phone on, we just back it up, right? So don't be afraid to let everyone know the goals. Even if you're a private company, let them know the things that they can um, help you with. Um, people are afraid sometimes in private companies um, to not tell everyone the numbers and in public companies are afraid to tell them too many. There's a fine line in between, but make sure that everyone, and we have someone in finance and they don't go home till the end of the day so they can post the numbers. In working with some small companies, one of the things they do is on the wall, when you walk in the employee wall, the door, um, this is this is a company that has to be in person. It's a customer um, sat company where they actually are on the phone all day, so they have to be in person. And when you walk in, they give you the numbers. It's Infusionsoft. They give you the numbers for the day and they give you the goal. What happened yesterday where we read yellow or green? Um, really important to have a continuous improvement on the numbers. Well, and, and I would assume that what you also tell uh, companies that are, are going down this path is that it's connecting those behaviors that are tied to the values to those metrics because then, it, then it's really about the behaviors. The numbers basically flow from doing the behaviors consistently over and over again, right? I mean, I assume that's one of the hallmarks of a Southwest or a JetBlue or any of the other companies who are doing this so so well. So at JetBlue, for instance, in Southwest, on-time performance, we ask the customers, what are the metrics? Well, they want on-time performance as much as possible. They want their bags, believe it or not, in 14 to 16 minutes. Uh, just a little factoid for you. And then they, they want to make sure that um, you actually, when you get on board, that there are certain things that you do quickly, that you're not, the business players have a little bit of a different concern, like on-time performance is critically important for them because they're usually rushing to a meeting, right? The general public really cares if you are concerned about their children. I mean, there are all kinds of things. They're a little bit different, but the real metric is on-time performance. Don't, for heaven's sakes, don't cancel my flight, which is a problem I know right now. Um, but we have four or five metrics. Every employee knows, and every employee knows how that feeds to the bottom line. Um, turning a plane, for instance, in 28 minutes is critically important because we get 12 to 13 hours a day of that plane, right? And other airlines only get 10 because it costs them because they turn a plane and it takes more than an hour. So they know why turning that plane is so critical. And at the end of the day, they also have profit sharing. So they understand it also, that's the only type of retirement they have and they only pay it if they make money, right? So getting people involved in those numbers is really important. 
So how, how do leaders who, you know, for the most part, we are hypersensitive to what the numbers are telling us and the, and the stories, how does a leader make sure that they aren't unintentionally providing the wrong message around the numbers uh, per se, where again, it's, it's, it's important to have the four or five metrics, but ensuring that we're not just talking about it from a bottom line perspective and we gloss over or don't emphasize the behaviors around the values. Cause I think a lot of leaders will say, yes, we believe these things and yes, we want to do these things. And yes, we want these behaviors from our folks. But when push comes to shove, they tend to just lead with the numbers and then you can sort of lose the momentum or even the credibility around why we think the values are so important and why they drive those bottom line results. I think becoming a good storyteller, I think for you and others in the organization to spread those stories out and talk about how they always tell a story along with the numbers because the story tells you about the behaviors and the values. I do think the numbers are important, so people need to understand that is the bottom line but they need to understand A, how they got there and B, why it's important to get there. And also, I we love the stories around customer feedback because it reinforces that they're doing the right thing, right? So telling stories about customers and what a customer said and what's important. I One of my favorite ones was, um, I don't know if I told you the story last time we spoke, but um, last Christmas, um, JetBlue publishes a magazine about four times a year. And in that magazine, we send it to the families because we want the families to be involved in the values and in the behaviors. And when somebody gets an offer for another airline, we want that family to say, don't take it. Doesn't matter if it's more, it's not about the same values or, or any other organization it may not be another airline. Our people recruited a lot. But so this individual gets a call. She gets to the airport and she has her dog and she can't take the dog because she doesn't have the right paperwork. The federal government requires certain paperwork to transport an animal on the plane. And she finds out that she can't get it. She's going to Puerto Rico. She just got out of the hospital and it's a service dog, but she didn't have the right paperwork. So she cannot um, get on that plane. It's just a requirement. And so they were. she was at JFK going to Puerto Rico to see her family for the first time after she got out of the hospital. She had to take the dog to the kennel that is there and leave the dog there over the holidays. She got on the plane. She was going Christmas Eve. I'm sorry, December 23rd. She got on the plane. She landed and she was hysterical. Um, and so she called one of our res agents who are all, we have virtual res agents. And this one was in Salt Lake City. And in Salt Lake City, um, this lady said, what can I do for you? And she said, I am hysterical. I need my dog. The service dog is in at JFK in one of the kennels. And I had to leave him because I didn't have the paperwork from the veterinarian. And she said, let me see what I can do. She called JFK, our res agent, called JFK and found out that there was no one that could go help him. They were swamped. So she flew on the red eye that night and went to JFK, went to the kennel on the 24th, got the dog, got a veterinarian to give her the paperwork somehow flew the dog because we won't let animals fly alone. She flew the dog to Puerto Rico and she ended up back home on Christmas Day with herself and her children. She didn't tell anyone the story, but the lady told everyone, our, our customer told everyone that story. And the CEO called her and said, what made you do that? That's a great story. And she said, I was just living one of the values, one of our values is caring. 
those are the kind of stories that are told over and over because it talks to a behavior that you want to see duplicated, maybe not flying to Puerto Rico every Christmas, but duplicated um, in terms of the value. And by telling the stories, I think leaders give credibility to the values. And it talks about how that client will probably, that guest and customer will probably never stop flying JetBlue. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit fcpservices.com. Until next time, remember, people drive growth.